There is the real thumb. Okay, so we're supposedly operational. I can take the glasses off because I can't see with them, as you know. And here we go, December 18, 2022, lecture discussion number 188 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and, of course, Genesis 15. Special Merry Christmas, Cliffside Christmas. Merry Cliffside Christmas. I have a letter today or an email from Luke from Ohio, and he knows that this is the special Cliffside Christmas edition because we will not be operating on Christmas. We're going to be... Uh, coming back on January 6th, we're going to have our winter uh, intermission uh, because we need that up here in Alaska. It's so dark you can't function for a couple of weeks, and that means we'll be able to get through that really difficult part. Okay, so let me read what he has to say. I think you'll find it interesting. Hi, or hey, Cliffside. I've been quiet lately, busy, busy, but I wanted to let you know I'm still here and eagerly anticipating the next installment, like SUP, if SUP exists. Omniscience versus free will is one of my favorite subjects. I wanted to say, have a great Christmas. Well, I, of course, don't say Christmas, Christ sent. I, I understand all the things, but I say Matthew 25, 6, uh, Mary winter solstice, because the bridegroom comes at midnight, and so it's the darkest part of the year, so I'm hoping that we get a ticket to the rapture on the 21st of December. What my plan is, but I do understand, as I've said many times, you can make the case that, uh, not December 25th, but you can make the case that winter solstice uh, in the northern hemisphere is the time of the hovering of the Holy Spirit over the Virgin Mary. Okay, where was I? I just wanted to, to say, have a great Christmas. You, Lori, Dave, Terithathy, did I spell that right? Okay. And the rest of the Cliffside Chosen. I'm looking forward to this afternoon's Cliffside Christmas special where we will gather with jollity and frivolity and living room polity. So pour me a glass of iced water and let's all join in singing Cliffside Christmas Carol classics such as Come Thou Long Expected Answer, It Came Upon a Midnight Weird, and Oh Fruchtenbaum, Oh Fruchtenbaum. <laughs> Pretty good, huh? I'm always amazed at you folks out there. You're just brilliant. Okay, to the surprise of nobody ever, uh, of those who have uh, even been sporadic listeners to what I do, my little dissertations here, once again I'm in a situation where I have a, a structure that is uh, non-completion. It's strewn about just, uh, i got pieces everywhere, and I'm still gathering these pieces, still gathering passages that provide information to the particular subject that I'm on. And uh, Luke from Ohio pointed out that it is, again, Today, the Armenian position of temporary salvation or temporal salvation, transitory salvation might be more correct, and the hyper-Calvinist position of the illusion of free will. So I'm still doing that today. And some might suggest that, that at this point that I'm at, that all that remains here is fragments. I don't have any answers. That's why we sing this, this song, we're waiting for the answers. i got loose ends everywhere. And... Uh, and I, I knew that would happen when I did this deviation into Calvinism and Arminianism. How many lectures, Dave, have I, uh, have I thrown at this? This is, seven. this is seven, and I wrote that. I said I wanted to know if anyone was keeping a running tally because I'm at a loss. I thought it was seven, and that would be my estimate. And you, you are conferring, uh, confirming that that's the accurate. So this is number seven today, or is it number eight? It's number seven, okay. That's not terrible. I've only got uh, 100 to go. 
So 93 left. Obviously, the considerations of both of these positions are copious. And I believe I began the process, I hope I did this, I began with the disclaimer that I could reasonably resolve the controversy. I think I can do that. This is a 450-year-old dispute. The issue, and actually more than that, probably, if you go back to Augustine, the issue is the length that it takes to do this, to get through all of this material. Anyway, where did we last come to an abeyance? That would be at Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, and Hebrews 10, 26 through 32. So that would have been lecture number 187. Those are the five admonitions of the book of Hebrews. And you need to know that when you're reading the book of Hebrews, that there are five admonitions. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is... That's that's in the third. It, it's contained in the third warning of the five dangers that uh, are in Hebrews. Hebrews 10:26 through 32 is enclosed by the fourth peril. So you got five dangers, five warnings, five admonitions, five perils, whatever you want to call them. They're called all different things in the theological realm. But Hebrews 10:26 through 32 is in the fourth, and Hebrews 6:4 through 6 is in the third. And it's important to know that what we're dealing with is the third and fourth of the five admonitions. Very important to know that in order to get the contextual uh, correct result. Okay, hopefully a majority of those who are attending by Internet, hi, how are you doing? I hope you're doing good. Remember some of the elements of this theological conflict. And that would be, for example, the context of Hebrews 6 and the context of Hebrews 10. And those are universally unknown, unfortunately. They're unknown. They're not, they're not ever discussed typically correctly by both the absolute Calvinistic position and the, and the total Armenian position. Understand that there are nuances in these positions. You have Calvinists that allow for some free will and Calvinists who say no free will. So you have absolute positions. You have uh, compromising positions in both the Armenian and the Calvinistic positions. Uh, Anyway, they, they just never get the context right on Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, or at least it's unpresented. And if it's unpresented, why is it unpresented? Why don't they say this is the context of Hebrews 6, this is the context of Hebrews 10. They are the third and the fourth warning. How come they never say that? Because I don't find them saying it. Now, either they do it on purpose because they don't know, or they do it on purpose because they do it on purpose. And it's something that's not a surprising eventuality because if it, you find something in the Bible that is, uh, uh, how do I put it, in controversy or it is disputing your position, you have a tendency to set it aside and continue with your opinion irrespective. And without the context, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 and Hebrews 10, 26 through 32, if you don't have the context, then it's going to be cited incorrectly. And I see that all the time. And, and that's the buttress interpretations that are wholly not being conferred by either uh, Hebrews 6, uh, 4 through 6 and Hebrews 10, 26 through 32. So they use them as something that provides evidence in their mind. And that evidence is, is not attaching to what they think it is attaching because they, have, they do not have the context. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 contains the impossibility and I, I think I put it on the board, the impossibility. I don't have time to do it today because we got a lot of material. Or that which is impossible for those who have received, those who have believed the five inherent confirmed truths. So notice what's happening here. I have five inherent confirmed truths and I have five warnings. 
or five dangers or five perils, five admonitions, whatever you want to say. The resulting, the resultant for those who believe these five God-given revelations is that they are now endowed with the impossibility, that which is impossible for them to do and for us to do because we are in the exact same position as they are. So let me rephrase that. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 contains this impossibility. And, and that is something is impossible for those who have believed their, the five inherent confirmed truths that are listed there. And when you are endowed, when you believe those five God-given revelations, then you are endowed with the impossibility. That which is impossible for you or impossible for them or for imp- impossible for us. To rephrase... Something here. Joel 2.32. Romans 10.13. Romans 2.11. For whosoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord shall be saved. As definitive a statement as you can ever find in the Bible. For there is no partiality with God. Another definitive statement that is equal to Joel 2.32. So Romans 10.13. Joel 2.32. Romans 2.11. No means no. There's no partiality with God. You need to consider that in this discussion. No means no. If you have gravitated to a concept that contaminates Joel 2.32, Romans 2.11, then I'm advising reconsideration. You need to to self-evaluate. Reflection, self-reflection is an art form now. It's hardly ever done by anybody in our culture. Okay, ask the easy question. Does super-deterministic precepts comply with Romans 2.11? Again, there is no partiality with God. Do super-deterministic, hyper-Calvinism, absolute Calvinism, total inability, does that comply with Romans 2.11? God says this of himself. There is no partiality with me. God establishes this fundamental of no partiality in Deuteronomy 10.17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty, awesome, who shows no partiality nor can be corrupted. That's what he says about himself. Well, what does he mean by corrupted? Have you defined partiality yet? to, To give you a really... A paraphrase here, God has nothing in common with politicians, the media, or academia. Okay? Because he cannot be corrupted. And he has no partiality. God has no partiality. He saves all who call out his name. He cannot be corrupted. Matthew 11:28. Jesus Christ says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you Rest. Rest from what? I. Who are the burdened and the weary? Burdened with what? Weary from what? What is rest? Hebrews 4.9 identifies Jesus Christ, names him as the great Sabbath rest. Now you have to study the Greek to find that out in Hebrews 4.9. It's usually not in your translations, but you... Get into the Greek, you see that he is called there the great Sabbath rest. What does that mean? How about Hebrews 4, 7, Psalm 95, 8 through 11? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now we're back to the Pharaoh, aren't we? 
The Pharaoh was hardened six times and, and, and God hardened him six times. And what does God, when he hardens somebody, usually he stands still or he takes a step back. That's what he calls hardening. Have to know that. And the, and the Pharaoh hardened his own heart six times. So I have a fair fight. Six against six. What, what does that tell me? There's a reason that that six is against six. 90, Psalm 95.8 is amazing. Let me read that really fast. It's just absolutely amazing. Again, I'm going around finding pieces of Scripture that I believe are necessary in order to come to the correct conclusion as to uh, the, the methodology of salvation. As I say, 95, 8 through 11. Let me find it again. I'm a professional. I'll find it. Today, if you will hear His voice, He says. Now listen to that. This is God speaking. Today, if you will hear His voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness when your father tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with this generation. That's God. 40 years he was grieved with that generation of Israel. He was saddened. He was weeping for them. And said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts. How do they go astray in their hearts? What did they go astray from? What position was not astray and now it's astray? What's the non-astray position? How did they get the non-astray position if they have total inability? And he says, so they shall not enter my rest. Why won't they enter his rest? Because they went astray. How did they go astray? What's the astray process? Okay? Just for fun there. How many are burdened and weary? And we have, of course, Matthew 11:28. How many is all? Does all mean all? Let me let me go back to that just in case I've lost track of you, because I'm throwing a lot of stuff out. And if it gets a little bit disjointed, Jesus Christ says, Matthew 11:28, "Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest." All. What does all mean there? Does all mean all or does all mean some? You're, you're starting to say to God that He is incoherent because you say, if you have this position of, of superdeterminism, you, you would have to say that all means some. Do I admit, yes I do, that there are many who will not be saved, but the, the issue is, is why aren't they saved? The Bible actually covers that beautifully, makes it completely clear. We'll get to that in a minute. Back to partiality. What is partiality? Partiality is bias. I have no bias, he says. Is the God of Psalms 36, 5 through 7, where he is described with loving kindness and mercy and deep judgment, righteousness, is that, is that God described as biased in any way? It is not. He is not there. You, you're not in compliance with an opinion of God that is depicted in Psalm 36, 5 through 7. Once again, I would ask you to reconsider your position. Bias connotes blindness, exclusivity, unjust corruption. He has no partiality because partiality is a sin. Exclusivity is a sin. Proverbs, all of that. There's no justice. That would also, in the eyes of God, be a sin, a corruption. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. 
keeping watch on the evil and the good, both humanity and the angelic. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight. That includes the animals, right? But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Again, we must give account. There's an accountability. Why is there an accountability? If there's no ability to have uh, to, to be anything but a sinful creature, where is the accountability and how is that compliant with accountability? Job 28.24 Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? No. Is the answer. No. It's, do I, in other words, that's a rhetorical question. God is infinite. Nothing hides from infinity. Why does man hide from God? How does he hide from God? Why does he think he can hide from God? What is the anatomy of hiding? How does how, what, give me the flow chart with respect to hiding? So to repeat, are Romans two eleven, Deuteronomy ten seventeen consistent with hyper Calvinism? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no, they are not. Now, where was I? Yeah, got to hurry here. The impossibility. Hebrews six. Those who were once enlightened. Oh, wow. And the once is absolutely in the Greek. Just think about that. Those who were once enlightened. Notice the once qualification here. Why doesn't it say notice the enlightened? It doesn't. It says once enlightened. Okay, what? that's the Greek word hapak. And it's only translated once. In all, it's in the in New Testament 14 times. All 14 times it's once. Okay, what is once? Once means already. It means earlier in times past. Only one time, only once. How many times have I told the Armenians that come to me? I say, have you? Are you familiar with once? Tell your your Armenian friends about once only. Those who were once only enlightened would be a perfectly sound translation. To repeat, Hebrews 6, 4 through 5, it is impossible for those once only, having been enlightened, having tasted then of the heavenly gift and made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Something is impossible with people who have done that. What is impossible? Something is impossible for these once enlightened, once only enlightened, Something is impossible for them. These tasters of the heavenly gift. Quick, easy question. Who is the heavenly gift? Because it's a person. It's obviously Christ. The person is Jesus Christ. Who is the good word of God? It says those who have, who are tasted the good word of God. Who is the good, who the word of God? Who is he? Notice it calls him the good word of God. The answer is the same. John 1, 1 through 4. What's this age to come? Is that the church age? A lot of a lot of the folks that get into this disagreement, this dispute, think that's the church age. Maybe, maybe it is. But considering that the context of Hebrews six four through six is Jewish Christians, and these are Jewish Christians that are intending to return to Jerusalem, the works based system of Judaism, 
The age to come then would be the messianic age or the eternal age. It's going to be one of those two, both of which are Christ predominant, thus attaching to the heavenly heavenly gift and the good word of God. The impossibility is linked to these five fundamental truths that I just read and listed. These Jewish Christians believe these five fundamental truths and have accepted them. They have a full knowledge of the truths. Here's the the five fundamentals of the revelations. Once enlightened. Number two, tasted the gift of God. So they have tasted Jesus Christ. Okay? They are partaking of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the word of God. That's Christ again. And the, and the powers of the eternal state or the eternal age. So those are the five things. When you have those five things, when you believe those, there's something that is impossible for you to do. And again, the eternal states, the new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 21-22. And that's my opinion. I can defend it. Bring a stick. We'll fight. I have a chainsaw. Just I'll let you know. So anyway, these, these Christians that have something that these Jewish Christians that are, th- that are considering intending to go back to the city of Jerusalem where they will be murdered by the Romans and eliminated as witnesses. And Paul knows this because Christ predicted it. He knows it will happen. And when Christ says it's going to happen, it will always happen, right? Being outside of time is a great advantage if you're a prophet and he is the prophet. So these are, these, Hebrew Christians that believe all of this are the cities, I'm sorry, they're they're citizens of the new city of Jerusalem. They're going there. And therefore they have secured, been armored with something, and that armor is the impossibility. uh, That's Ephesians 6.11. Because you see, they are now in a state of impossibility because of those five fundamentals. There are some, in other words, there's some being in a state of an impossibility means there's a restriction on them. And there's a restriction on you and me and everyone who believes those five things that are in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Why are these restrictions imposed by Christ? He imposes restrictions, the impossibility. And I'm going to have to admit here that tasted has been the most often attacked of the five, usually described by the advocacies or the advocates of Armenianism as being an exploratory process. They're going to assert that the Jewish Christians did not fully digest or ingest or absorb the gift of God or the word of God. Or the, in other words, they just tasted it. They just had a little taste. That's what they'll say. They claim that these people are not the truly saved. And you will see truly saved all over the place. There's churches that just fundamentally want to be the truly saved crowd. That exclusivity. God has no partiality. Just, just realize that. Well, that, that, that's an interesting thing to ask. That's an interesting idea. But I'll tell you this. Uh, they say they're not truly saved and they love being the gatekeepers. And I can tell you again and again and again. You get somebody that says you're not truly saved. Run from that person. There's no ability at all to make that determination and they don't know it. But they want, they wish to install themselves as the arbiters, as the umpires of salvation. 
C.I. Schofield argued for this truly saved concept, or what's called a threshold Christian. Christians that get right to the threshold, well, they didn't even call them Christian. People that get right to the threshold, but they don't go through the door. They just stand on the threshold. And they just barely make it to the threshold, like that woman in Judges 19 barely made it to the threshold. But she made it. They see a difference between the threshold and the door. Well, the threshold's part of the door. Who's the door? My advice is always to avoid those who claim the ability to separate the wheat from the tares, Matthew 13.29. Matthew 13.41, they're declaratory. They leave no prerogatives. We do not possess the wisdom to gather the saved from the unsaved. We do not have it. God tells us we don't have it. Jesus Christ divides the sheep from the goats. His angels are sent to collect the wicked. We are not allowed to do that. Why not? Because we're idiots. And we have this truly saved nonsense. The Pharisees, as you know, eagerly established themselves as the judges of what is acceptable to God. What behaviors alienated, what behaviors eliminated the unwashed from the washed. And they, they, uh, they put a blockade between a human being and God. Now, churches have done that. They're still doing it. You can't know if you're saved unless I tell you you're saved. You'll see that all the time from the pulpit of these churches. Of course, the Catholic doctrine says that only Catholics are saved. The Mormon says only Mormons pretty much are saved. The Jehovah's Witness believes they're the only ones that are going to go to heaven. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. Yes, ma'am. I can have water. Churches are in an economic struggle. That's why. I've said that for years. The, 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 the blood of the, the, the... Churches have to have money because they have organizations that require it. And they have salaries that require it. I have Social Security. And I'm thrilled I got an 8.7% increase in my Social Security. That's very exciting for me. That means Lori can now buy food for herself instead of just for me. I'm kidding, obviously. But anyway, read Matthew 23, where, where Christ, ad- the woes to the Pharisees. He attacks those who set themselves up as the gatekeepers, the arbiters of salvation. And what he says about them is profound. Read Matthew 23, what they are doing, and do the exact opposite of the Pharisee. Identify the Pharisees and stay away from them. Hebrews 2.9 wrecks the Arminian interpretation of Hebrews 6.4. You will hear Arminians say, well, that's Hebrews 6.4 is evidence that you can lose your salvation and get it back and lose it again and get it back again. You can do that into infinity apparently, according to the Armenian position. But Hebrews 2.9 absolutely wrecks it because it says, that's the same word for tasted that is in 6.4 and 6.5. It's used in Hebrews 2.9. And it says that Christ might taste death for every man. Same word. Christ might taste death for every man. Did Christ just get a little nibble? Is he a threshold position? He almost 
tasted death for everybody? Is that your position? It can't be true. Obviously, God did not. Jesus Christ did not tepidly, partially, almost taste physical death. That is heresy. He shed his blood for everyone, he says, where it states that God might taste death for everyone. Who's everyone? I'm going to say this really fast, just in case somebody misunderstands me, and that always happens. There is no universalism. We know that everyone will not be saved. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. The issue is not that everyone will... We know that everyone will not be saved. That's not the issue. The issue is why will they not be saved? Why not? He shed his blood for everyone. But everyone is not saved. So why not? What's it got to do with the blood of Christ? Hebrews 2.9 overlaid with Hebrews 6.4-6 simultaneously countermands both the total inability position of the hyper-Calvinists and the transitory salvation dogma of the Armenian. It wipes them both out. How uncomfortable for each of them. They can become friends. They both got wiped out. If the Armenians and the, and the Calvins... Calvinists on the extreme edges of both of those positions, if they ever became friends, we would know that's a a miracle. John 3.16, we all know John 3.16, or we think we do, for God so loved the cosmos. That's what he says, so loved the cosmos. So that's all of the creation. That he sent himself the Son, that everyone believes in Jesus Christ should not perish. That everyone who believes in Jesus Christ should not perish. That's what John 3.16 says. But should have eternal life. And I presented the little literal Greek there. Not the typical translations. John 3.14, John 3.17, John 3.18. We never look at John 3.14, 3.17, 3.18. All we see is John 3.16. Oops. Always look at those verses that are proximate. He who believes in him is not condemned. Again, it does no equivocation here. But Christ, Christ came that through him the world might be saved. What does that mean? Might be saved? Again, it's the cosmos. How many in the cosmos? Again, God has authority over time. Christ can see all, the, all of the cosmos all, over all of the time. Which means when he says everyone in the world, he is being complete. Again, all means all. Everyone means everyone. He can see everyone without exception. Every single person that has ever come to existence. He can see them simultaneously. That's omniscience and that's timelessness. So when he says everyone, he is not mistaken. To him, everyone would mean everyone unless you think that he is just using language that is inappropriate. If he meant some, he would say some. He shed his blood for everyone. And he came so that that everyone might be saved. John 3, 18-20 describes the wicked who refuse to believe. Those who hate the light of life, which is, of course is Genesis 1-5. 1-1-5. through 5, 1, 1 through 5. The light of life strikes the earth. John 8-12. John 11-25. How am I doing? Okay, for today, analyze, I'm halfway through. So that's good, right? 
I have halfway, so I can start kicking back here. Wow. I've learned that I can step back with my right leg and not make the floor squeak. Yeah. How about that? Watch this again. Pretty good, huh? Let's try the left leg. leg. Oh, no, let's not. Let's not go side to side. Chubby Checker would not be able to do it. Who's Chubby Checker? Again, to repeat, what's his definition of everyone and whosoever? Come on. And all. And take Again, outside of time means something when he can see everything and all things in each and every one of us outside of time. And he uses the word all and he uses the word whosoever and he uses the word everyone. That's different from us using it. His definition is extended into infinity. He knows everyone. Okay, take notice of Matthew 21 through 11. Now we'll move to there. That's the parable of the laborers. That's another routinely botched passage by those who wish to utilize it to bolster their preferred opinions. The parable spoken by the Lord God himself is immediately subsequent to the rich young Pharisee. What's the rich young Pharisee about? Because right after the rich young Pharisee comes the parable of the laborers. So what do you know about these two? That's right, they're interlaced, they're locked together, they're feathered in. Christ compares the rich young Pharisee to a camel and a needle. That's what he does. Thus, the parable of the laborers is meant to attach to the camel and the needle. So when you read the camel and the needle, now you read the laborers, you know that they are both together into one entirety. It's beyond dispute, though there are Protestants who will always protest. But nonetheless, it remains obvious that Matthew 19.24, Christ's extraordinary statement, this is what he says. And again, again, why does he got to repeat himself? Because we're idiots. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. What's he referring to when he says the kingdom of God? What is he saying? I'm going to say to you the kingdom of God is salvation. Oops. And Matthew 19.25, when the Jesus' disciples, they verify that I'm right again. When the Jesus' disciples, apostles hear this, they were greatly astonished by it. And they said, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved confirms that the camel and the needle is dominating salvation, uh, denominating salvation. It's the means of salvation. Let me repeat it. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, which means it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to be saved. That's what he says. And the apostles say, well then who can be saved? If, if it's the, Nobody can be saved because a camel can't go through a needle. So nobody can be saved. Who then can be saved? And the one that is salvation, his very name is salvation, so he ought to know, right? He says this next, and he says, while... 
He's looking at his apostles as he says that, the Bible says. So he's looking at them. Why would that detail be in there? Because obviously they haven't figured out how salvation works, have they? They don't know. He said, with men this is impossible. With men it's impossible. But with God, all things, all salvation is possible, is what he's saying. Because it's about salvation. All things are possible with God. And, but the topic, again, the context is salvation. Kingdom of God, the eye of the needle. Who then can be saved? We're talking about salvation when we're talking about the camel and the needle and the rich man. And now we're talking about it when we're dealing with the laborers. Obviously, the impossible of Matthew 19.24.26 is intended to affix to the impossibility of Hebrews 6.4 because the Holy Spirit of God designed the perfect, the perfect that comes, His perfect that comes, right? His Holy Word, He designed it to interconnect unimaginably in unimaginable ways. We can't even begin to decipher how much connectivity is in this incredible book. And so what should we do? We got an impossible, right? We got with men this is impossible. So what am I going to connect it to? Well, I'm going to connect it to six four Hebrews because I got another impossible, right? So I should go find all the impossibles in the scriptures. Or it shouldn't I? I should collect them. I should inform everyone here that in some translations, however, I've got to get, get this accurate, the Greek word for impossible is assigned to Hebrews six four, and many of your translations will say it's six six. They'll put the impossible in six six when it belongs in six four. I think it belongs in 6.4. I think it's obvious that it does. But there are some that they say 6.6 and you'll find those, those translations. The Greek word is adonatum. How many times is the Greek word? How many impossibles are there? Oh, guess what? There's seven. So what should we do? That's Matthew 19.26, Mark 10.27, Romans 8.3, Hebrews 6.4, Hebrews 6.18, Hebrews 10.4, and Hebrews 11.6. Seven impossibles. What should we do? We should put them all together, right? And wait for it. The context, the subject of all seven impossibles, what do you think it is? Salvation. All seven. Oh, it's just, this Bible is so lucky. Whoever wrote it, just one lucky guess after another. It's amazing. I'll just rattle some of them off. You can look them up yourself. you got two more weeks or until January 6th when I come back and put you all to sleep again. The blood of Christ, salvation, the blood of Christ is involved in this impossible. The promise to Abraham given by Melchizedek, God does not lie about salvation. The blood of sacrifices, bulls and goats cannot save anyone. God does not change. He's immutable. All of those, so it's impossible for him to change. All of those are, are intermixed in these seven impossibles. All those subjects I just rattle off. No time today to assemble the seven impossible. No time today to put them into a whole. There are seven parts of a, of, a singular, of a singularity. And in this case, seven parts of an impossible, of a, sorry, of an infinity. The seven parts are one. And the one is salvation. So how is the parable of the laborer adding evidence to that salvation? How does Matthew 20 interlace with the camel and the needle? What is impossible as it relates to salvation? Something is impossible because God says it is impossible, but not for God. Something's impossible for man, but not for God as it relates to salvation. 
Something, again, is impossible for men, for mankind and angels, but for God it is not impossible. Why am I repeating that? To give you time to figure out what the impossible is. Christ God has solved what man considers impossible. What do you think that is? And salvation is the issue. And hopefully many of you have identified the supposed impossible. It's impossible for man, but it's a supposed impossible for God. And you're leaping to the obvious already, and that's fantastic. In any event, I'm going to continue here with Matthew 20 for those who need more time and information. I hope that, I suspect at least, that uh, uh, as we continue, that there's an epiphany that will come for everybody that's listening to me because the impossible to me is really obvious. It's impossible for man to figure something out, but it's not impossible for God to do it. What could we be talking about? Anyway, I hope I'm getting there. Matthew 20 is, as always, ridiculously complex. This is God, infinite God, omniscient God, telling a parable. And so it's ridiculously complex. And again, I'm already at page 12. And Matthew 20 demands months of study, so I don't have time to do it. But we'll be doing it as the weeks go by after at January 6th. And as usual, I'm going to just present a dulcetory, superficial, sketchy analysis and note the threefold redundancy there. That's the best I got. So here we go, Matthew 20 a little bit. There are key phrases that reveal the identities of those who are included in Christ's parable here. There are the ones who are standing idle. So right off the bat, who's the ones that are standing idle and what's God's definition of standing idle? What does he mean by standing idle? So the landmark, landmark, good grief. The landlord, the landowner, went out early. Now this is Christ saying the landowner, and he is the landowner, right? All things are his, he's God. Went out early. What's he mean by early? But again, there are phrases that allow us to figure out all of this stuff in this parable. And and going out early, this certainly is Jesus referring to himself. So Jesus went out early. He intends to hire workers who work to work in the vineyard that he owns. So he owns the vineyard. He went out early, and he's going to hire workers. Why? What is he depicting here? Why does God hire workers? Why is mankind involved in whatever is being depicted by Jesus Christ in this parable? Why does he involve human beings in something? He does, but why does he do it? Why the human participation? Does God need workers? Please say, duh. No, he doesn't need workers. No, duh. He wants workers. Why does he want workers? Why does he want workers to be involved in something that he is wanting them to be involved in? Here's a, here's a, for what purpose? I'll ask this question. Is God hiring salvation workers? And if he is, why does he do it? What does he get from it? He doesn't get anything. 
But from our perspective, what does he get? What's he trying to say? Again, what's the subject here? God agrees to pay one denarius for the work. And key question, what's the work that got done? Picking grapes? No. If you're thinking picking grapes, that's not what's happening here. It's far more complicated than that. The first workers receive one denarius, and they agree to receive one denarius for one day of being in the vineyard. And you've got that, you got that Peter verse, right? A day's a thousand years, a thousand years a day. And these are the early ones. And then Jesus waits three hours. Why does he wait three hours? What, go, what else happens in three hours? Okay, we're at the crucifixion. But he waits three hours. And then he hires the standing idols. They're idle, but they're standing. Who are these guys and women? And Jesus continues. He has this system. And again, I'm just really sketchy here. This is a cursory explanation. It's even a cursory evaluation. <coughs> I'm even presenting it, and it's and it's it's not even close to what should be said. He goes out again on the sixth hour. So he goes out early, and then he goes on the third hour, then he goes on the sixth hour, and then the ninth hour. And he says he's going to give what's right as the payment. So he's going to give what's right. I'm going to give what's right. What do you think is what's right? Whatever is right, I will give you, he says, Matthew 24. On the eleventh hour, he found, now the eleventh hour. So I got the third hour, I got the sixth hour, I got the ninth hour, and I got the eleventh hour. Well, wait a minute, I had three, six, and nine, and now I got eleven. That doesn't work. It should have been twelve. But it's not twelve, it's eleven. Three, six, nine, eleven. Probably a mistake by him. Because, you know, he's only God. He's not good at math like me. Uh, on the eleventh hour, he found others. He found others. Omniscient God found others. Of course he found them. Now we're in that lost coin thing, aren't we? That woman that finds that lost coin and everybody rejoices. So he found others. And the Lord God Almighty, creator of all things, asked those whom he found in the eleventh hour, he asked them this, why have you been standing here idle all day? To repeat the obvious, we must correctly define idle as it applies to Matthew 19, 24 through 26. Why have you been standing here idle all day? So I have the eleventh hour idle ones, right? I got the early ones, I got the sixth and the ninth, and now I got the elevenths. Oh, I got the thirds too. I forgot the thirds. Can't forget them. They're important. But they they answer Christ's question. Why have you been standing here idle? They answer him. Does the infinite, omniscient God know why they have been idle all day? Duh. Of course he does. Anyway, they answered him, because no one hired us. So what does God do? He hires them. No one hired us. We want to be hired. Oh, you do. You want to go into the vineyard. You want God to hire you. And you're standing there idle, waiting to be hired. When he shows up, you say, no one hired us. And he hires them. Is he happy with these that stood there all day long? Obviously, he hires them. What does hire mean? And he tells them. He sends them into the vineyard. He sends them into the vineyard. Oh my God. A lot of people will say that's Israel. I'm not so sure. Me thinks it's not what you think it means. He sends them into the vineyard and tells them whatever is right you will receive. Again, what's right? 
to God. What's the right amount? What does he give? And it becomes a denarius for one hour of work. Now the bomb explodes here. we got detonation because oh, i got these guys come in on the 11th hour. They're hired the same as me. They get the same I get, and I'm mad. The all-day group, they complain. They also received one denarius for all day's work. You made them equal to us, they complain. That's their grievance. They're filing a grievance against the employer. You made them equal to us. You can't do that. And obviously now we need to diagnose perfectly the representation of the one denarius. What is one denarius? Only the first hired are deserving of the one denarius? Who teaches that? Who says there's a first hired and they get the denarius and nobody else ought to get a denarius? They can't have a denarius. You only give it to us. Who says that? Lots of people. One thing is obvious. God doesn't think that way. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Everyone is equal to him. The work done, the time at work is immaterial. They are ultimately equal. The race is a tie, if you want to think of it that way. It's a dead heat. You got a head start, but you came in tied. When is this? When is everyone equal? When are the workers of Christ equal? In the millennium? Nope. There's a hierarchy in the millennium. So what is the denarius? What does God give? What does hiring mean? And as you should be aware, there is much disagreement over the denarius meaning. There's, we've got 1 Peter 4.10, Acts 11.23, 2 Timothy 1.9, John 1.16, Titus 2.11 and 12, 2 Corinthians 12.9, Romans 3.22, Romans 3.24, John 1.14, Romans 1.5, Acts 6.8, Ephesians 4.7. If you read all those and you put them all together and you're still awake, that's going to lead you to conclude that the denarius is the grace of God that terminates in salvation. God gives His grace now you got the question, what is the difference between the grace of God and the salvation of God? Can they be separated? Can I separate the salvation of God from the grace of God? Moving along, Jesus concludes his parable by asking the snivelers, the grumblers who are dissatisfied, is it not lawful for me, because I'm God, to do what I wish with my own things? Who is he calling his own things? Clearly he's calling people his things. Or is your eye evil? He says this is an amazing thing. Or is your eye evil because I am good? So, who is the evil one? Who is the good one? Who is the source of evil and who is the source of good? Who is always good and who is evil? It's the ones that did not want anybody else to be hired or get a denarius. I wish to give this last man the same as you. And and he says that the eyes of of the malcontents are evil. And they're evil because God, because Christ is good. Christ being good made the last equal to the first. He has no partiality. And this angers the eyes of those who are, who are evil, who have evil eyes. He angers them. And those who declare that the last of the hires should never have been hired, Their eyes are called evil by God. Only the first hired, they think, are discerning. Oops. 
And do not pass over this statement by Jesus God. I am good. I am good. That's again, that is Psalm 35, 6-7. 36-5-7, sorry. There are also those, and many also those, who declare that they know how God has designed His salvation. They're absolutely positive of it. They're, you can't move them off of it. They're sure they've got it all worked out. It's a piece of cake. No, it's a piece of pie. It's easy as cake. The apostles said, though, these are the apostles. These are His disciples. What do they know, right? How can anyone be saved? Why did they ask that question? Because they couldn't figure out how anyone could be saved. They didn't know. And we can't know either. We're not apostles. We've never been apostles. There aren't any apostles. Forget all of that nonsense. That's going to get me some bad, some nasty letters. But there aren't. The very word apostle means one who has seen the physical God as Christ. If you haven't seen Him physically and you haven't walked with Him and you haven't done what He said and you haven't had the endowment that He gave you, then you're not an apostle. You're somebody that just wants to be one. Big difference. What you want and what you are are not compatible. The apostles asked, how can anyone be saved? Because they didn't know. They said, no one can be saved by this. You're going to pull a camel through a needle? How are you going to do that? No one can be saved by that. And Christ says, I can do it. I can pull a camel through the needle. You don't know how I can pull a camel through the needle, but I'm going to do it. And that means I'm going to save lots of people because I'm going to pull as many camels through needles as i got to pull. But they're still over there screaming. He can't pull a camel through a needle. He can't do it. There's no possibility that these people can be saved. They can be hired. Not possible, right? Okay. Unraveling, untying the aspects of His salvation is not possible for mankind. It is only possible for God. That is what Matthew 19.26 is about. Sorry you didn't know that. Not really. Sorry, actually real sorry. Human work is insignificant when it comes to the presence of God's grace. So human work, is when it's in the presence of God's grace, is insignificant. Everything's equal. He gives His grace to the eleventh hours. Is hours a word? It ought to be a word. Apparently it's now a word. Finally, so what is impossible for the Hebrew Christians? If If you... Have I got you focused on that particular issue enough? I hope I saw I did. Mankind, I'm sorry, Hebrew Christians, they have impossibilities. God never has impossibilities when it comes to salvation. But human beings do. God, omniscient God, is able to forget the sins of the believers for mankind. He can forget the sins of believing mankind. He has that ability. We can never know how He does that. Our our human mind is limited. We cannot imagine how God is able to blot out sins, not remember sins. Yet He does. Isaiah 43.25, Hebrews 10.17, Psalm 103.11. The default position from angels and mankind is it's impossible for Him to forget sin. He can't pull a camel through a needle. He can't do it. For Him, it's not impossible He's saying that omniscience, my omniscience, coexists with blotting out of my memory. Somehow those two work. Somehow that camel gets through that needle, baby. And both are true and not in conflict. How can that be? Shouts the finite, puny, small-minded, pretentious, self-confident, ivory tower theological academians in their pomposity. 
and of course I want to. I got a little time. I'm going to move away here. You have Rene Descartes. I was talking about him earlier. He had pretty much the same position as uh, Kurt Goodell. Goodell. He said man is not perfect, therefore they are always in error. And Goodell said it in a different way. Man is incomplete, so therefore they can never conceive completeness. They can never know any truth. But they both got it right. And and uh, as you know, uh, as I said, was, I was saying to Dave and, and Terithithi early. Or, can anybody really spell Terithithi? Does it? Okay. But anyway, it might be impossible to spell Terithithi. But anyway, um, uh, Descartes believed that existence could be the existence of God could be proven by free will. In other words, that free will has a has is evidentiary of the existence of God, God's presence. Said my free will demonstrates God's presence, and you need to know that. If you so, you start ripping away the, the free will, then what are you saying about the presence of God? And they don't know that. They've never read Descartes. They've never read any of these guys. They don't know what they don't know, but they're confident in it. Was it constantly wrong but never in doubt, right? Where was it? God can only save the lost by their man-centered, man-conceived method. That's what they say. He can only save humanity by what we say he can do. They come up with a pro- protocol. Is it really, really, you see, that's your statement. God can only save the lost by my idea. My idea is that this is the only ones that get saved, and there's no room for any of these other people. I'm the only one hired. Really, the answer is no. Stop it. Only God can define and explain salvation. And they're going to concede this about the Bible. They're going to say the Bible is seemingly non-definitive. I can't quite get it. In fact, some of them will actually say, with respect to the totality of the salvation gift, they'll say the Bible's silent. All we got is this predestination thing, and that's all we got. Nothing else. Nothing. Nothing else. Why would the Bible be silent to you? Why is the Bible silent here? Well, it's silent because we're pulling camels through needles. This is the infinite dealing with salvation. He can't explain it to you. He can't explain it because we're too dumb. We're finite. We're incomplete. We we are imperfect. So what is the impossible act that the saved believing Hebrew Christians were, were proposing? What was their plan? Well, because they're saved, it's now impossible for them to cast off their salvation. They can't do it. It's impossible. Because it's salvation that is transitory, that is temporal, is not salvation. So they can't cast it off. They believe those five things. They're standing before God as saved. Hebrews 6, 6 lays it all out. It's impossible for them to fall away. It's impossible for them to be renewed again to repentance based on the crucifixion of Christ. Christ cannot be re-crucified. You can't be, you can't be saved again. You can't lose your salvation because Christ cannot be re-crucified. There can only be one crucifixion. One crucifixion. Why is that an absolute truth? Submit your papers. Write them all down. Test on Friday. Got to know this. Why is there only one crucifixion? Note that Arminianism is now completely destroyed. 
by the very verses that they think proves it. How's that for irony? Okay, how about a few seemingly unconnected pieces or items or elements? Notice I said seemingly. What is good? Which is good? Actual free will or illusionary free will? I am good. Why is your eye evil? Because I'm good? Which one of those is good would you describe? Free will? Real? Existing? Existence free will? Or illusionary free will? Assign goodness to one of those. Is your eye evil because I am good? Remember what he said there. If you, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Luke 11, 11, 11 through 13. Does God give snakes, rocks, and scorpions? No, He does not give snakes, rocks, and scorpions. The answer again is no. The answer seems to be no a lot. Notice it's those who ask Him. These are the words of Jesus Christ Himself. If someone asks God for salvation, a good gift, the good gift, the heavenly gift, if somebody asks God for the heavenly gift, the Father, what will, what will God give Him? Remember, God is good. Luke 11, 11-13, and Joel 2.32, and Romans 10.13, they're all the same. They're all the same verse. Worded differently. He repeats, Does God predestine some for eternal life and reject and predestine others for eternal death before either are formed in the womb? Why would He do this? Because you need to know why He has to do it. You know what their answer is? He has to do it because that's my system of salvation. He can't have a different idea. Why would He predestine salvation? You have to be able to answer that. Why would He do it? You have to come up with a why. Don't ask me how or what and tell me what or which or what. You've got to tell me why here. Why do some call out to the Lord Jesus Christ, Joel 2.32, and yet others do not? He gave His blood for everyone. We have that communion service. This is my blood. Take it. Drink it. Right? Again, free will or the illusion of free will? Which one's good? I am good. Is predestination theory a scorpion, a serpent, a rock, or, or is it bread? Is it a good gift? Anybody say predestination to eternal hell, damnation, lake of fire? Is that a good gift? John Cow, if you ask Whoever asks God for a good for the good gift, he will give it. John Calvin himself said his concept was a horrifying, dreadful doctrine. I agree. He's right about that. And it sounds like a serpent conceived it. Genesis 3-4. Doesn't sound good to me, baby. A few more closing questions. The purpose of God is predestined. That's true. That's Romans 8, 28 through 29. That is Christ. Christ, the Lamb slain, right? The Lamb slain before time, Revelation 13, 8. The hypostatic union, the God-man, the greatest mystery of all. That cannot be solved by a man or angel. This is the greatest mystery of all, 1 Timothy 3, 16. Christ is the purpose. The purpose of God is predestined. So yes, there are predestined things. No dispute about that. Is individual salvation predestined? Again, if you think so, why? If not, why? If so, why so? 
Did God hide salvific predestination from the angels? Luke 15.7 says no. Oops. We find free will throughout the Bible. We find hope and choosing and trust and love and follow and come and cry and weep and call upon and joy and believe and repent. And I haven't got started. I hardly made it. That's just a little tiny taste. Ah, ha, ha, joke. There's a huge amount of evidence of free will. It's throughout the whole Bible. It's everywhere. Okay? But here's the negative that's also evidence that solves the question, why do some unsaved? The negative is everywhere, Matthew 23. Evil is a willful choice. Ezekiel 28.16, Revelation 9. I'm going to end with Isaiah 55.6-9. Because I never do this, I always stop, or I always do Isaiah 55.8-9. and 9. Because I've been waiting to do this. Because I'm diabolical. We're going to start out with 6. 55, 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him when He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the righteous, unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. So the unrighteous man can return to the Lord and so can the wicked. And He, God, will have mercy on him. And for he will abundantly pardon. And to our God he will for he will abundantly pardon. And then he goes, So what's he talking about there? That's that's six and seven. He's talking about salvation, isn't he? And then he says this My thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts with respect to salvation. Here's my plan of salvation and here's yours. I can't... It's, here, I'm going to put it on the board. His plan of salvation is the whole board. Here's man's plan of salvation. Here's what we know about it. Right there. I got it right there. You see it? Got it. There it is. See, it's right there. Can't miss it. And that didn't begun. His thoughts about salvation are not our thoughts. His ways of salvation are not our ways. Get that through your head and then come back and start looking at these verses. Quit thinking that you have figured something out that you cannot possibly figure out. And I believe you'll have a, a hope. His salvation is higher than we can know. Notice his thoughts are connected to his abundant salvation. That's what he will give that wicked man that comes to him. Okay. Oh, 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 yeah, I forgot. Uh, somebody who doesn't really exist. Someone who's standing in for Supper Dave. Because this isn't really Supper Dave. We, he is a doppelganger. So this guy's acting as doppelganger. In the personage of Supper Dave, and he has something to read. <laughs> We would like to thank the Internet Congregation for your prayers, your participation, and for your financial support. It's helped us keep the lights on, the heat, the Internet on. 
and provides a safe place to work and reside, the pastor and Lori. We hope that Pastor, uh, Pastor's lectures have brought you closer to, to a relationship with, with the triune God and a greater understanding of his word and his love and his mercy and his salvation. May you have a wonderful Christmas and a blessed new year. And may God continue to richly bless you and yours with uh, wisdom and grace. Thank you. Pastor, would you close us up with a closing prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that your salvation is higher than the heaven is the heavens are to the earth. We're grateful that we cannot understand your thoughts or your ways. That is how it should always be. Please let us believe you and know that you are saving all who, who will come to you, everyone who asks, everyone who will cry out. You will save them. Those are the great promises of the Bible, of, the, of your word. Hey, please be with all those who listen to this weird guy up here. Help him out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.